Well, good morning. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Chris. It's good to have all of you here. And uh, we're kicking off this brand new series called Hashtag Winning, and I'm personally really excited uh, about this series. And I've thought about this idea of winning so much the last several weeks. And uh, here's what I know for all of us in this room. We all love to win, don't we? I mean, we, we love to win personally. We love, if you're a sports fan, you love for whatever your team you follow or individual you follow, you love for them to win. We love to win and probably despise losing. There's eight, 28 seconds left on the game clock. Game six, heat versus the Spurs. And I'll be very transparent. I'm a bandwagon NBA fan. Uh, I, I followed, uh, I was a Chicago Bulls fan growing up. Yay, go Bulls, because Michael Jordan. And then Jordan left, and I was like, now what? And then I, I, I was a Lakers fan for a while, because I loved Shaq, and kind of Kobe, but more Shaq than Kobe. And then Shaq left, and then I became a Heat fan. <laughs> like, I'm just, that's me, so my teams usually win. It's great being an NBA fan. And so I'm now a Miami Heat fan. And so 28 seconds, game six. Manu Ginobili gets fouled, hits one out of two free throws, and it puts the Spurs up five points, 20 seconds left. At this point, I'm sitting on the edge of my couch going, it's over. Not only do I think game six is, is uh, the Heat are going to lose, but that means that the Heat loses the national finals championship. That moment in the arena, Heat fans start to pour out to the streets because they just had this sense of our team's going to lose. Our team's going to lose. And we don't want to watch the Spurs uh, hoist that trophy up in, in the air. As fans were leaving the arena, LeBron James comes down the court, pulls up, hits a three, makes it. Now they're only down by two points. Kawhi Leonard comes down, gets fouled, hits one out, two free throws. Now the Spurs are up by three. If you watch this game, one of the most epic endings you could imagine LeBron comes down, pulls up for a three, misses. Chris Bosh grabs the rebound and kicks it out to Ray Allen. Any Boston Celtic fans out there? Ray Allen catches the ball. And here's what most people don't know. Ray Allen, he spends between three to four hours before every game shooting hundreds and hundreds of shots. It's what he's done from the very beginning of his career. And so when he catches this ball, it's what he knows what to do. It's in rhythm. It's in sync. He has done this so many times, and he pulls up, and he launches this three-point shot. I remember as I sat on the edge of my couch, literally my hands go up behind my head going, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hits it. The crowd goes wild. Miami sends it into overtime. They win game six. And in game seven, they become national champions. I think about all those fans that left the arena in game six, that they wouldn't let back in the arena. How many of those fans one day is going to be sitting with their grandkids? Yeah, I was at that game until 28 seconds left. I was there, but I left. Why? Because... Who likes losing? If you remember ABC's wide 
world of sports. That famous tagline. The thrill of victory and the... Yeah. Do, do you feel sad for that ski jumper? Right? Like, like you, can you imagine that conversation with his grandkids? Yeah, that's me. I was a guy going off sideways. Like, that is now his legacy. Because that's all you can think about when you hear that line, the thrill of victory and the agony of that poor guy going off sideways on a ski jump. Jack Welch, in his book titled Winning, he writes this. I've been asked literally thousands of questions, but most of them come down to this. What does it take to win? I think winning is great. What does it take to win? Here's what I know. We love to win. In our jobs, we love to win. We love to land that deal. We love to sign that person. We love to uh, 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 make that decision that shifts of where the company's headed, we love to win in our jobs. We love to win with our families. If you have kids, you, you want your kids to win. That's not bad. I shared some weeks ago about my daughter's soccer season. She's on this traveling competitive team, and they had a perfect season last year. They, they didn't win a game. It was awesome. And, uh, and so me as a dad, I kept on saying to Kiera, and I, I meant this, but I kept on saying to her, do your best. It's not about winning. Do your bet best but I understand I mean you you want to win and she wants to win this fire within her spirit she wanted to win I mean it drove her nuts that they didn't win a game but I kept on saying to her just do your best lead on the team build your team up talk on your team work on your game this season is about you getting better and you helping your team get better but man I, I wanted her to win at least one game she wanted to so we got to the offseason, and they had tryouts, again, for this competitive uh, team. And there's different kind of uh, uh, different teams. You know, there's the A team, B team, C team. And, and so they went to tryouts again. And, you know, we just got the email that uh, she got selected to move up into a higher team. And as a dad, I was, I was proud of her because she's, she's worked for that. As a dad, I'm like, well, maybe they'll win a game. <laughs> like, Yes. But I want my kids to win. My wife and I were working on a, a trip. Uh, we try to get, get away together uh, one time a year, just her and I. And uh, we love our family time with our kids, but we try to. And, and uh, I would say most years we have. And so uh, this last week, we were working on where that week away was going to be. And I found this website. And uh, it's all the historical hotels across America. If you've ever seen this, it's amazing, these old, glorious hotels that they've kind of reconditioned, refurbished to, to make into hotels. And so I was looking at a couple different places because there's a lot of them on the East Coast. I was looking at some different places, and she came home, and she goes, hey, I found a Groupon. I'm like, a Groupon? Yeah. She goes, for one of these historic hotels. I'm like, no. Really? Yeah. So I get on the computer, she grabs her phone, she actually calls this hotel, and we're kind of going back and forth, and when it all comes down, we, we lock in the Groupon, and we got this hotel for about 40% off what they were going to charge us, and I'm like, winning? Like, that's great, you know? I was like, yes! Love to win. And in our lives, probably this list could be longer, but these are the top five things I put on the list. 
achieve success, earn money. And really, they're, they're all interconnected, right? Most of the time, if not all, when you achieve success, money follows that. Gain power, leverage influence, increase notoriety. And we're just like, man, that's winning. To be honest with you, those aren't bad things. Now, it's what you do with those things, how you position those things, what's going on inside your heart. But these aren't bad things. Jack Wolch goes on in his book, Winning. He goes, yes, winning is nuanced and complex, not to mention brutally hard, but it also happens to be achievable. You can win, but to do that, you need to know what makes winning happen. And this book offers no easy formulas. There are none. And I read that, and I reread that again. And I think, you know what, Jack, as he was writing to this very specific business leadership audience, he knew exactly what he was talking about. And if you lead in a business context, you, you understand that. It's difficult. There's no easy answers. And he just sets it up saying, hey, this book offers no easy formulas. You see, if Jesus was writing an introduction, I think Jesus would write something very similar to this. Because you see, Jesus laid out for us kind of this uh, framework for what it means to win, not in business, not in leadership, but to win in life. And Jesus laid out this amazing framework to say, hey, this is what winning looks like, and there's no easy formula But this is the framework. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to be uh, looking at what's called the Beatitudes. And if you've studied the Beatitudes at all, maybe you've read that there's eight Beatitudes. Maybe you've read that there's nine Beatitudes. And that's kind of a little debate that goes on, whether there's eight or nine. And uh, as I've studied and read and looked through it, I, I personally think there's only eight. Because the eighth Beatitude and what people think is the ninth, they really go together. Like the ninth really just expands on the eighth. And so uh, we're going to look at it as far as eight Beatitudes, plus we only have eight weeks. So it fits. And uh, uh, so if you think there's nine, that's great. Uh, That's okay. Uh, But we're going to look at these eight Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude literally means this, this happiness, this contentment in life. And Jesus is going to say, hey, to win in life, to to." Truly find out what this happiness is all about. Here's these eight Beatitudes. This is what winning in life looks like. Now, if you're a Christ follower with us today, a couple things I want to just share with you, challenge you. First of all is this. All eight of these should be present in your life. It'll it'll be easy. I'm just going to tell you. It's going to be easy to say, I like those four the middle two, I'm not sure about, and the last two, I hate. I'm just not going to, I don't want to focus on those. I want to focus on the ones I like. And Jesus is going to say, no, all eight need to be present. And all eight, they're not necessarily intuitive. Not necessarily are you going to be saying, oh, yeah, I've thought about that. And some might be. 
But I'm sure there's going to be several of them that you're going to find yourself going, I've never thought about it that way. I've never even considered this idea. And you're going to want to pick and choose. I, I want to pick and choose. And Jesus says, to win at life, here's the eight. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, guess what? You can pick and choose. That's great. You're like, ah, I don't like that one. You can toss it away. But this is what I want to challenge you with. First of all, I get that you watch people. I watch people. And maybe your struggle with Christianity is because you've interacted with some Christians and you're like, if that's what Christianity is about, I want nothing to do with it. Or maybe you've read an article or watched a news broadcast and I'm, sometimes I wonder where these news shows finds their Christians because I'm like, ah, I don't think I want to eat with that person. I mean, I have to love them because I'm a Christian. But hey, Jesus is going to give you an amazing framework for what a Christ follower should look like, should, how they should live out their life. Amazing framework. And as you discover this list, you're going to discover what's really important to Jesus. And you're going to get a great insight who Jesus is. I also feel that there's going to be some great principles that you can pull out of this and apply to your life. Great principles. We find the Beatitudes located in, in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And actually Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount and maybe you wonder, well, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Simply because uh, Jesus was teaching from the side of a mountain. It's real creative. And uh, so it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's the longest recorded sermon of Jesus's. And he's going to just kickstart this sermon, this message, getting into the Beatitudes. And this is how it's set up. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. So we see these two groups of people, the crowds and the disciples. And if you study the Bible at all, you'll know that the disciples, especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and into the book of Acts, I mean, they're everywhere. And maybe uh, there's been a little confusion about who the disciples are and, and, and how many of them there were. Usually we kind of talk about the 12 disciples, and maybe you've heard the 12 disciples. Actually, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. And especially in this moment here, early on in Matthew chapter 5, we're not sure how many disciples were around Jesus. You see, the word disciple just simply means learner. And every rabbi had his disciples. You couldn't be a rabbi without disciples. And at this point, people understood that Jesus was this rabbi figure, this great teacher. They had no clue what was to come. So at this point, Jesus had this group of people around him that were learners, that were following him, that were leaning into his teaching. Now you might be wondering, well, where did the 12 come from? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus selects 12 disciples from all these disciples, selects 12, and he calls them apostles. It's the only time in the book of Matthew where he uses the word apostles. And that word apostles literally means to be sent out. It was this military shipping term about 
boats leaving the harbor going out. And so out of this group of disciples, how many uh, there were, we're not sure, Jesus selects 12. And those become the apostles. But many times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll read about the, tw- the disciples. And sometimes it means the 12 selected, and sometimes it means this larger group. And you just kind of have to discern your way through. And usually it's pretty easy to understand what Jesus was getting at or what the Bible's talking about. So at this point, this is a larger group of people following Jesus. And then the crowds, a bunch of people that maybe never had heard of Jesus, maybe a group of people that weren't sure about Jesus, maybe a group of people that were just passing by. But what's interesting is the crowds started to sit down, and the disciples were, were, were sitting down, and they were leaning into what Jesus had to say. And we go to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, the last two verses. And this is what Matthew records. When Jesus had finished saying these things, meaning this entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You see, there's something about Jesus' words. No matter what you believe in Jesus, no matter what you think about Jesus, there's something about Jesus' words that just causes you to lean in. And so if you have questions about Jesus, man, just be open. Because you're going to get an amazing picture into the heart of who Jesus was and is. So we get to the very first beatitude, and every beatitude starts simply with uh, these words, uh, blessed are. The word blessed uh, literally means this inner contentment and joy that can only be found when your life is right with God. That's what it means. You are blessed when your life is lined up with God. You will receive uh, this inner joy and contentment and peace when your life is lined up with God. So every one of these Beatitudes is going to start with blessed are. So the first one says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the reward is amazing. We'll get to poor in spirit in a minute, but the reward's amazing. For those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will receive the kingdom of heaven. And throughout the Gospels, uh, it, they use the kingdom of heaven. They also use the kingdom of God. And it's the same thing. So for those who are poor in spirit, they receive the kingdom of heaven. The reward's great. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean you can't have wealth? No. Does it mean you can't be successful? No. Does it mean that you have to move to some island and uh, live in a convent somewhere? No. Does it mean you have to walk around with this attitude like, woe is me. You know some people like that? Like, No, it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Paul, who wrote a significant uh, number of the books of the New Testament, had this very authentic, transparent moment. As he's writing this letter to this church located in Philippi, we call it the book of Philippians. And in this very transparent moment, I think Paul articulates beautifully what it means to be poor in spirit. 
This is how he framed his thoughts. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And it's going to feel uh, maybe to you that Paul's being a little prideful or arrogant, beating his chest a little bit. And maybe, maybe there's some of that in there or not. I think Paul was trying, personally for me, I think Paul was just trying to set the tension. And he's saying, hey, if you have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, Meaning, if you think you're all that, if you think you're that good, if you think that you have won in life, if you think that you're successful, I have more. Paul's just simply saying, no, really, I'm better than you. Right? You feel that tension? Like, ah, that's not, is that in the Bible? Can you say I'm better than you? Paul's saying, hey, if you want to go there, I'm just going to say I have more than you. I'm better than you. If it's me versus you, I win. And then he's going to give us kind of his resume or his LinkedIn profile. And this is how he starts off. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, I don't think there's anyone on LinkedIn right now that will have circumcised. <laughs> right? There's some things in the Bible that I just wouldn't recommend. I, I wouldn't recommend that at all. Uh, but to the Jewish culture and the Jewish audience that he was speaking to, this was, this was just nor, normal. This, this wasn't abnormal to them. And what he's going to be building to is this, this, this Hebrew of Hebrews thought. So circumcised on the eighth day, what he was saying is, hey, my parents followed the letter of the law. The law in Leviticus says that children would be circumcised on the eighth day, and my parents followed the law. From the very beginning, Paul was saying, when I was born, I came in, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, my parents followed the law. They honored the law of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And right there, people would have known, like, that's a, that's a big deal. To us, we're probably like, oh, great. There's 12 tribes. And I tell you, there's some tribes that were winning <laughs> and some tribes that weren't winning. And the tribe of Benjamin was one of those top tribes that people were kind of envious of, like, oh, you got born into that tribe? I got born into, you see, the first king of Israel, Saul, came out of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul's saying, I, I, I know what you guys think. I, yeah, I, I'm from that tribe. What tribe are you from? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, very, at the very beginning, Paul was saying, hey, my lineage is pure. There's no question about my lineage. There's no question about my parents. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews all the way through. Then he goes on. In regards to the law of Pharisee. You see, if uh, you spend any time in the New Testament, and uh, if you've been here at all, usually when we talk about Pharisees, uh, usually we're banging on Pharisees because Jesus banged on Pharisees because uh, they put up a lot of obstacles in front of Jesus. But during Paul's kind of his lifespan, the Pharisees were really looked up to. They were the religious teachers. People would come and sit underneath the Pharisees. And Paul said, hey, I, I was a Pharisee. And not only was I a Pharisee, everyone knew that Paul sat underneath Gamaliel, one of the most recognized Pharisees. He was a teacher of teachers. This would be like Paul saying, and by the way, 
when I went to school, I went to an Ivy League school, and I sat underneath the best professor. I'm well-educated. And then he goes on and says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. You see, before Christ took a hold of Paul's life and shifted him to a new direction, Paul took all of this zeal within him, all this fire within him, and he led out persecutions, killing Christians. And he says, hey, not only do I sit and learn, but I've ta- I took everything I learned and I put it into practice. I've been successful with whatever I've set my mind out to do. As for righteousness, based on the law, get this, faultless. 613 Old Testament laws, and Paul said to have them all memorized, faultless. He says, hey, here's my resume. Best school, best teacher, best career path. I've leveraged my leadership in great ways. Everyone knows who I am, who I am. Everyone knows what I have done. I've done great things, winning. I have more. And then he says this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I mean, I wonder the people just reading at this point, you know, they're Paul hit a nerve, like, come on, Paul, why are you being so boastful? Why are you being so proud? And then he just takes this left turn on them. He says, hey, all that I have gained is loss because of my relationship with Christ. All of it. He goes on, if that wasn't clear enough. What is more, I considered everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, uh, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Everything is, is lost. Why? Because I now know who Jesus Christ is. And, and when I follow Jesus Christ, when I have given him everything, when I turned and trusted in Jesus Christ, I realized that everything I gain here on this earth is nothing compared to my relationship with him. And if that wasn't clear enough, If that didn't kind of set the stage for what winning's all about, what Jesus said winning was all about, he really hit a nerve. This is what he wrote. I consider them garbage. Now, we read the word garbage, and we're like, oh, why is that a nerve? Well, you go back to the Greek, and again, there's these people reading this. Maybe someone's reading it aloud, and there's groups of people listening, and he gets to this, I consider them garbage. And that word garbage literally means excrement or dung. But it's not just excrement or dung. It's one of those words that packs a punch. It's one of those words that you want to cover your kid's ears. (laughs) It's one of those words that maybe if you have small kids or older kids or whatever the rules in your house, you'd want to hit the beep button. I can't consider them I think everyone in that moment would have been like, did he say that? You see, Paul was trying to emphatically paint this picture of saying, no, 
It's not about what you have done and what you think winning is on this earth. It's all about God's kingdom. It's all about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and what Jesus Christ is doing. It's all about that. He goes on, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You see, we go back to this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Paul gets right into it. Being poor in spirit is recognizing, it's recognizing that compared to God, that when God is a focus of your life, that when you start looking at God and realizing who God is and what God has done, I'm not that good. My wisdom compared to God's wisdom, my plans compared to God's plans, my will compared to God's will, my possessions compared to what God thinks are possessions. Like, when we start looking at who God is, we realize the things we think are important, the things that we think are uh, successful, the things that we kind of frame in this winning category start to look dramatically different. Oswald Chambers wrote these words. The bedrock of Jesus Christ's kingdom is poverty, not possession. Not decisions for Jesus Christ, but a sense of absolute futility. I cannot begin to do it. Then, says Jesus, blessed are you. That is the entrance, and it takes us a long while to believe we are poor. The knowledge of our own poverty brings us to the moral frontier where Jesus Christ works. You see, we, to be poor in spirit, you begin with, I cannot do it. Jesus' message, you can go back to Matthew chapter 4, I think it's verse 23. And when Jesus came and started to teach, he had one message. It was about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus understood. He understood where the tension was going to lie. And I think this is why he started with blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is a kingdom. You see, there's this battle between my kingdom and God's kingdom. It's where it comes down to. And so many times we look at winning and everything we put underneath winning, winning would be under my kingdom. It's, it's what happens what I need, where I need to go, what I need to do, how much money I need to make, what possessions are important to me, what I think my kids should do. It's all me, 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 me. And blessed are the poor in spirit starts off with what's God's kingdom. The poor in spirit says, I'm going to be totally reliant on God. I'm going to start there and then back up. I'm going to start focused on who God is and then go from there. And you see, there's one question with a one-word difference between these two questions. 
But it's a powerful word difference. You see, we start here is what is my will? What do I want to do? And when you start focusing on God's kingdom, it's what is your will? God, what do you want? God, where, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to do? You see, as you move into the Sermon on the Mount, there's this other really famous section. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you haven't memorized. And Jesus lays out this beautiful framework in which we should pray, how we should pray. And it starts off with our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed is your name. I don't know for you, for me, most of the time when I start praying, it's, hey, God, I need now. I'm on timeline. God, I need an answer now. God, I need you to show up here. God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. It starts with my will. And Jesus framed it saying, why are you starting with you when you're going to an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God? Our Father, this personal prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, how big, how mighty is your name? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that's where it starts. To be poor in spirit means you start with recognizing the majesty, the sovereignty of God. And you go to him saying, God, what's your will? God, what's your plan? God, what do I need to know? God, I, I want to be part of your kingdom, not my kingdom. I want to serve your kingdom, not my kingdom. God, I want to be about what you're about, not what I'm about. See, God wants to take all of your success and he wants to take you and how good you are. I mean that. And he wants to take you and leverage how good you are, how creative you are, how smart you are, how great of leaders that you are. And he wants to take you and leverage you for his kingdom, not your kingdom. You see what I love about Paul's story? It's what happened to Paul. Paul was very successful. He was winning here on, on this earth. He was winning. Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous, getting stuff done. When it comes to the law, faultless. But when Jesus grabbed a hold of his life, and when Paul realized that compared to an almighty God, he wasn't winning. Compared to an almighty God. When Paul realized this, and he started praying the prayer of, God, your will be done. I want to follow you. We, we now know who Paul is. Not because he was a Pharisee. 
not because he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. There was a lot of other guys that sat underneath Gamaliel. There was a lot of other guys that were Pharisees. There was a lot of other guys who were part of the, the tribe of Benjamin. That's not why we know who Paul is. We know who Paul is. Why? Because Paul understood what it was about to build God's kingdom, not his kingdom. Paul understood what it, what it was to follow God and say, God, what's your will, not my will? And when Paul became poor in spirit, where he understood everything he gained was lost because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. God took this man, and through him he wrote a significant number of the books of the New Testament. And through Paul, he went out and started to plant and launch churches I tell you, we have a church like Renaissance today because Paul went out, raised up leaders, planted churches and cities, mentored leaders, loved on leaders, spiritually led leaders, and churches erupted in that area. You see, we know who Paul is today because Paul realized it wasn't about his kingdom, it was about God's kingdom. So my challenge for you is this. What, get, what can God do with the gift set that you possess? However you're winning in life right now. And what if you start praying a simple prayer? Our God, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we become poor in spirit and our focus goes from my kingdom to God's kingdom, when Jesus said theirs will be the kingdom of heaven, because now you're participating in God's kingdom, not your kingdom. You're linked arms with an almighty God who's doing great things. And God will take you and leverage you in all of your giftedness to make him known. Start praying the prayer. See what God does in your life. Let's pray. Lord, it's a huge challenge, I know it. It's a scary challenge, to be honest with you. It's one of those challenges that feels maybe a little overwhelming. But Lord, when we come to the place to realize that everything we gain on this, this earth is really loss, everything we gain here is loss, but when we join you in your kingdom work, whatever that looks like, lives change. Lives change. So Lord, I just pray for bold, bold prayers that are committed to doing your will. In your name we pray. Amen.
God bless. Have an amazing week.